0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Hey, one of my favorite highlights of a Monday is chatting to you, Chris. How are you today? Oh, I'm in good
1: shape. How about you? Very
0: good, thank you. Uh, your questions are already lined up. I'm not even going to ask mine. Uh, <laughs> some of our listeners they have to take priority. People are getting in early. Yes, they did. Uh, one was just even before the headlines. In fact, so without further ado, let's go to Dima. Well, the
1: early bird catches the wall. Exactly. It? And Dima gets brilliant. to be, she, go for
0: it. She gets to be first because I think the last time we couldn't get to your call, Dima. I can okay. distinctly remember your name from last week. Okay. Good day, Aza and Dr. Chris. Um, my question is on gap teeth. Um, I, when my milk teeth fell off, three teeth came back, the front two. In state of two, I had three. The one was behind the two. So I dentist removed the other one because it was extra. But as I grew up, I developed a two millimeter gap teeth. My question for Dr. Chris is, why are some people born with extra teeth? and what causes gap teeth. Thirdly, and related to teeth, the scientists recently discovered that babies are born without wisdom teeth and with smaller heads. Does that mean that we're still evolving? Much thanks. I'll listen on the radio. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much, Dima. Uh, I'm also affected. I've got a gap. Uh, my top front teeth uh, separated. Yes, Chris?
1: Hello, Dima. Well, the answer is that some people, just by chance, happen to develop extra teeth. And it happens to a number of famous people as well. I I gather Freddie Mercury had some extra teeth as well, and he attributed his amazing singing voice to the shape of his mouth, thanks to having extra teeth. So this can be a huge advantage. But it just so happens that in some people, extra aggregations of the cells that are going to form teeth, these are called um, odontoblasts, they can aggregate in certain places and then form a tooth, even though they're not wanted there. And it's just one of those things that occasionally happens during the development of the head and neck. Now, it's not harmful. And if you have the tooth removed and it therefore doesn't get in the way, so your dentition you do have is, is well organized and uh, is not impinging on anything else. That's great. It's actually quite normal to have gaps in your teeth and it's abnormal to have teeth that are perfectly aligned and perfectly straight and everything else. That's just a a, a consequence of the fashion industry and a desirable trait and something we can achieve by orthodontics. But it's not necessary to have healthy teeth, to have them perfectly all aligned and, and right next to each other. As long as you can clean your teeth and as long as you can floss between your teeth, that's the crucial thing. And depending upon how big your jawbone is, you've got more or less room for your teeth. And the reason that some people have tooth crowding can be because there's literally not enough room in their mouth to fit all the teeth in. And you find that people who have bigger jaws can actually afford to have their teeth a bit more spread out, and therefore they may have gaps in their teeth. And you'll find that people with certain uh, particular ancestral traits, people in the African continent, for example, tend to have a bigger jaw and more space, so they tend to have teeth that are more spread out and not all buckled up on top of each other because there's a smaller jaw. There's an old saying in dentistry Uh, When I go back to this point about flossing, you don't have to floss all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. So actually having a gap (laughs) between your teeth is really very valuable because it means you can access all around them with the dental floss. And it's the best thing you can do, not just for your oral health, because flossing your teeth also has a massive impact on your systemic health. There is a strong correlation between gum disease and heart disease, believe it or not. And people who have poor, poor dentition, poor quality Uh, oral health and gum disease have more systemic inflammation in the body probably because they've got chronic low-grade inflammation going on in the mouth that spills over and that can accelerate the process of arterial disease placing you at higher risk of heart disease and stroke so it's not a major problem if you have gaps between your teeth you're not abnormal in any way and in fact it can be advantageous from a dental hygiene point of view.
0: Oh, Chris, they should actually have you write the message because if I knew this when I was younger, I would not have felt bad or thinking that my. Well, my teeth daughter's would be always on to
1: me about She's saying, oh, I, you know, I've got a gap in my teeth. And I said, and I keep showing her pictures of some very beautiful women who have gaps in their teeth, and saying, "But look, you know, this is a, this is not an abnormal trait. It's it's actually a very attractive trait, and also it's very good for you know cleaning your teeth." And yes. um, she won't listen, but uh, <laughs> yeah. hopefully some of it gets through there. Oh,
0: I love it now. I love it now. But I think you know, as you say, based on messaging, when you're younger, you think, "Oh, are they not going to close? Are they not going to come together? Oh, drat, they're going to stay apart, <laughs> and you wish there's something that can be done." But now, and for many years, I've absolutely just fallen in love with it. Um, let Let's go to Keith. Keith is in Athel in Johannesburg, with a question about vaccines. Hello, Keith. Hi, Lenny, and hi, Dr. Chris. Okay. I've got a question regarding vaccines for the under-16-year-old uh, age group. So, presently, the UK and other countries are only vaccinating people over the age of 16, which I understand is because the trials excluded uh, persons younger than 16, Um, due to the fact probably that they're less vulnerable to get severely infected. However, we know that these youngsters can retransmit the virus or any other new variant to more vulnerable groups such as their parents and grandparents. So my question is, are the pharmaceutical companies presently testing or planning to test um, this age group at a later stage, let's say once the more vulnerable groups have been vaccinated, or will they be excluded from being vaccinated going forward? Mm. Keith, what a timeiest question, because there is news on this front coming out today. Chris?
1: The answer, Keith, is yes. For all of the reasons you've outlined above, the children in the under-18 group were not included in the vaccine trials in the first instance because it's really protocol that we don't test medicines on on youngsters. But subsequently, um, we are now doing trials, and in the UK there are trials ongoing, to test the vaccines and their efficacy in younger people. And they're going on at the moment. The data are beginning to emerge. We will have that uh, important data pretty soon. We anticipate that the vaccines will work properly in children and will help to protect that group. And there's a number of reasons for wanting to do that. Number one and uh, is that there will be vulnerable children in that group who are not like other children and therefore might be at higher risk of coronavirus. It would be nice to know that we can protect them. Secondly, children have a habit of growing up. And they grow up increasingly fast, as any parent knows, as they get older, and they will eventually become adults. And when they do, they'll want vaccinating too. So why wait till they're adults? Why not do that sooner? So they're currently doing these trials, doing the tests. They're going on in the background. And this will inform almost certainly the strategy in terms of the use of vaccines in younger age groups in the future.
0: Mm, Let's take a break. More with Dr. Chris Smith, our naked scientist, after that.
1: Seven o two.
0: The Naked Scientist. Let's go back straight to the lines for your questions. Manu, you're in Midrand. Your question for Chris this afternoon.
1: Hi, uh, as I end, Chris, uh, my question is: Does the virus is going to continue to mutate, and it will
0: eventually mutate outside the range of the efficacy of the vaccines? My question today is: Why don't we make vaccines? out of parts of the virus that don't mutate so quickly so that it can be, you know, that the the virus can be eradicated. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that um, a strategy, uh, Chris? Yeah.
1: Hello, Manu. The answer is, this is an excellent uh, point you've made, which is that people are looking for so-called invariant parts of the virus, which will be universal vaccine targets. In other words, they're parts of the virus which were it to change them, it wouldn't work as a virus. And therefore, it's constrained by having to keep those parts the same. And therefore, we can attack them. The problem is tracking down a part of the virus that fulfills those criteria, but is also visible to the immune system and when targeted by say antibody does disable the ability of the virus to bind on because there are some parts of the virus surface which do do the the necessary thing of of being constrained by their shape and structure but which are much harder to target by the immune system because they're hidden within the folds of the surface of the virus and it's much harder for antibodies to get onto them and meaningfully disrupt them or disrupt the ability of that part of the virus to do its job The targets that have been chosen so far have been those that we know the virus uses to get into our cells. And uh, that means that it's very efficient. The vaccines can work very well. But as you've pointed out quite rightly, that as the virus mutates and changes, it bends or deforms those parts of the virus, which we were previously targeting, making our ability to target the virus harder again. Mm. So people are doing precisely what you say. They're looking for invariant areas or areas that don't change much or change very slowly and seeing if they can be targeted to alleviate this problem. The problem may then become that if we do target those areas, maybe the virus will eventually be persuaded to change in those areas and then in another compensatory area. So it's always going to be a game of cat and mouse. So at the moment, we are targeting areas that we know are absolutely critical to the virus in order to protect people quickly. But in the long run, the strategy along the lines of what you're outlining may well be the one that wins the day. Mm. We'll just have to wait and see what scientists can discover.
0: Fascinating. Dinigo, you're in Katlehong this afternoon. Hello.
1: Hi, Alva. Hi. Hi, Dr. Chris.
0: Yes, Dinigo, he's listening. You can go ahead. Yeah, I just want to check with him. Um... Why is it a uh, mosquito?
1: They are, they are unlikely to bite on the face as compared to the rest of the body.
0: Mm. It, so you they cover...
1: Actually, it. They, they actually hit the face. They, they can hit the, the, the hands and everywhere else.
0: Mm-hmm. What's your least favorite spot, didn't you? <laughs> I can think of one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just <laughs> I'm um, just surprised. Okay. Something, something repelling them on the face or something
1: like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, Chris. Mosquitoes are attracted to us via a number of different things. Uh, one of them is temperature; they're attracted by warmth. The other is by what we breathe out. They're attracted by breath because the carbon dioxide that's rich in our breath, because the naturally rich sources of carbon dioxide in the environment are usually warm-blooded, living, breathing things like us. We're readily targeted by our breath. And they also go for volatile chemicals that ooze out of our skin, which single out the fact that we are uh, a potential meal to a mosquito. And those volatile chemicals are basically just oils and other chemicals, small molecules that, that are made in the skin or on the skin surface by the action of microorganisms that live on us. So when the microbes are doing their thing, They produce various volatile chemicals that go into the air and signal to the mosquito, ah, there's a potential meal here. Now, it turns out that about 70% of the time, the most common site to be bitten is on your legs and feet. And for this reason, a guy I actually met in Durban was making, this is two years ago at the uh, BioAfrica conference. Mm -hmm. He's actually Zimbabwean, but he's making um, mosquito-repelling socks. Mm -hmm. And his breakthrough was to come up with a composition of yarn where you can actually put the uh, repellent into the core of the yarn in a structure that's capable of soaking up large amounts of the repellent, Mm -hmm. but then releasing it only very slowly. So he had socks, and he was going to make elbow gaiters as well, actually, that you can then wash, and they can go through the wash 20 times and don't lose their function. I think they're also developing this in Pretoria. And um, I haven't, I haven't actually seen the goings of this. Whether it's actually come to market yet? So this was a couple of years ago. So hopefully, I think his name was Intokazizi. So hopefully, you've succeeded.
0: Yeah.
1: And you've got your got your mosquito repelling socks out there. But his stat to me was seventy to seventy-five percent of the time, mo- mozzies go for the feet. And this is probably because your feet are more swelly, it's more smelly, more sweaty, and there are more microbes there that produce more of the sorts of chemicals that mosquitoes find really attractive. So they tend to go for those bits of the body. Also, you're less likely to notice being bitten on your legs and feet because you have a lower density of innovation there. So you're more likely to swat the mosquitoes away from your face, less likely to notice them on your legs and possibly arms, and therefore they'll go for those sites to uh, successfully feed, and hence you'll get more bites there.
0: Interesting. Tanuka, thank you. And now we have eight-year-old Razim with a question for you this afternoon. Hi, Razim. Um-
1: Hi. Hello, I am um, here to speak to a scientist.
0: Yes, you can speak to him, he's listening.
1: Um how does I have some questions for Um how does the acting stabilize itself with the molecular structure? And also how does lines form like, like when they form, they immediately the stabilize themselves and why you know, else
0: mm-hmm. is <laughs> isn't that much constellations. Okay I'm trying to keep up with all your questions. Yes, so
1: am I <laughs> um, can you list them for me as a one by one and we'll just do them one at a time if you can remind me of each one so I don't forget any and then we'll do the, do each one at a time.
0: Okay, so why is South Africa rich in gold? And you said, how do atoms stabilise themselves? How did planets form? Okay, let, let's do the gold one they... first. Okay. Right, so
1: there are some very ancient rocks in Southern Africa. And around Johannesburg, for example, are some, some of the oldest rocks on Earth. Not the oldest, but some of them, um, very, very ancient. It was an intensely volcanic area. And volcanoes bring up from the Earth's interior heavy materials, including gold that's naturally sunk into the Earth's interior with the rising magma. This then gets deposited with the lava flows and because there were mountains around Johannesburg that got weathered and eroded by incessant rainfall for example, the gold particles were weathered out of those mountains and those rocks and washed into what would have been a shallow sea. Uh, over Johannesburg, millions of billions of years ago. And on the floor of that sea where the rivers flowed in, you would have uh, seen the dropout or deposition of the gold particles. And that's why you've got reefs of gold there in successive layers, built up over a very long period of time, millions of years, as as the land reshaped itself. And that's why they have to build those incredibly deep shafts, some of them, you know, four kilometres to six kilometres deep, to go right down through that, what would have been the ancient seafloor, so you go vertically downwards and then you come out horizontally to interact or, or or meet or cut off that reef at various points on what would have been that seafloor to pull out the rock and then extract the gold particles in there. You don't find nuggets of gold in these parts of Africa. You tend to find tiny fragments of gold, but there's a lot of it because of that weathering process and you can very quickly uh, extract that gold from the rock and get very, very rich supplies. And, and the vast majority of the world's remaining gold is in South Africa for that for that very reason very very rich gold bearing area
0: mm. uh, and then the question about planets, how they formed and how they remain stable
1: and not sort of you know explode on themselves okay planets form from what are called planetesimals, baby planets, and it takes a long time for this to happen. So when a system like ours first forms, you start with a big cloud of gas and dust. Something, and it could be just chance, but sometimes it's another explosion elsewhere in the universe creating a shockwave, nudges that gas and dust together. And because mass has gravity you end up with a mass of material that pulls more material in towards itself and slowly more and more of the gas and dust collapses towards itself and it forms a proto-star, a baby sun. And this gets bigger and bigger and bigger and as it gets bigger it squeezes material inside itself harder and harder together and this ignites that star and makes a star burn. Around that very gravitationally o- active object is the residue of the gas and dust that would have gone into forming that star and this then settles in a series of rings which orbit around that proto-star because of the influence of gravity. So you get effectively a giant version of the planet Jupiter, or Saturn rather, with planet in the middle, rings around it. You get a star in the middle, rings of gas and dust around it. And in those rings of gas and dust, you get then under gravity the formation of planets because more of that material begins to collapse together to form a planet, and as it goes round on its orbit, it pulls or sweeps out the gas and dust in that orbit, gathering it into the planet. And planets are round because that is the best configuration for getting most of the material as close to the other material as possible in the most stable way. And gravity acts through the centre of something's mass. So if you've got a spherical object, that's the most efficient way to arrange all of the material to get as much of it as close together as possible where the gravity is pulling it towards the centre of that object and Mm. so you get these planets that are formed and then they're stable on their orbits after that
0: and atoms how do they remain stable that will be our final one in fact
1: well remember that not all atoms are stable um you'll often find uh, alongside the gold that comes up uh, um, in south africa you'll find a radioactive chemical called uranium coming up as well Mm. so these are atoms that are not stable an atom is stable because the core of the atom, called the nucleus, contains a certain number of protons, the positive charges, and a certain number of neutrons, which are not charged, but they glue things together and help to stabilise that nucleus around the outside of the negative particles, the electrons. But some atoms have a, a, the wrong number, let's put it like that, the wrong number of okay. neutrons in relation to protons, and they can't hold the nucleus together very well, and as a result, it falls apart radioactively and spits out radiation and turns into mm. two new elements that can either themselves be radioactive or they can be stable. And it depends on what, they st- what the starting material was. So not all atoms are stable, but the vast majority of them are not radioactive and they are stable. And it's because of attraction between the charges, gluing the whole thing together and holding right. the particle together.
0: Oh, Razim came ready. <laughs> and at least we are able to answer those questions.
1: he got his but, money's worth. Yes,
0: but we can't get to anybody else because we're out of time. But no bother because we've got you again next week uh, for all of these fascinating questions. Thank you, Chris.